Hello and welcome to the September 21st, 2021 Annals of Internal Medicine podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, and I'm here with a quick summary of the new material you will find if you go to annals.org. I know how busy our listeners are, so let's go immediately to the new material. The first study I'll highlight is a modeling study that suggests that the U.S. population immunity against COVID-19 infection remains insufficient to resume pre-pandemic social behavior. As of July 28, 2021, 60% of adults in the U.S. had been fully vaccinated against COVID-19, and over 34 million cases had been reported. However, these numbers may not show the whole picture, as they do not include unreported symptomatic and asymptomatic cases. As such, questions remain regarding the true number of infections throughout the pandemic and the level of population immunity achieved in the U.S. Researchers from York University and Yale School of Public Health developed a simulation model to estimate the total number of infections since the start of the pandemic. Then, combined with vaccine coverage and estimates of real-world vaccine effectiveness, the researchers estimated overall an age-stratified population immunity. They estimated that as of July 15, 2021, approximately 115 million people had been infected with COVID-19, nearly quadrupled the number of reported cases. Overall, the model estimated that 62% of the U.S. population likely had some immunity to COVID-19. Adults aged 65 years and older were estimated to have the highest immunity level at 77.2%, while children under 12 years had the lowest immunity level at 17.9%. Herd or community immunity is accomplished through a combination of vaccination and natural immunity. While the number of infections has been high, this model suggests that vaccination levels, especially in some regions and among some populations, are too low. Also, there remains uncertainty regarding the protection previous infection confers. Consequently, the authors conclude that population-level immunity is not yet at a level in the U.S. that permits a safe return to pre-pandemic life. The next article concludes that extended use of anticoagulant therapy longer than three to six months after a first unprovoked blood clot is associated with considerable bleeding risk, especially for older, sicker patients or those with a history of bleeding. Although some patients who develop venous thromboembolism have clear risk factors, others have unprovoked VTE with no clear reason why the clot formed. In these cases, guidelines recommend treating with anticoagulation for at least three months. Decisions about longer courses need to consider the potential risk for more clots compared with the risk for a major bleeding event due to the anticoagulation. Researchers from the University of Ottawa and the Ottawa Hospital in Ontario, Canada, reviewed 27 studies with data on 17,202 patients who had at first unprovoked VTE to determine the incidence of major bleeding during extended anticoagulation of up to five years in this patient population. They also analyzed if there were differences in bleeding events based on age, sex, site of clot, kidney function, history of bleeding, use of other therapies, level of anemia, or study design. The researchers found that for every 1,000 people who use vitamin K antagonists such as warfarin for a year, 17 people will have a major bleeding event. For every 1,000 people who use direct oral anticoagulants such as rivaroxaban, 11 will have a major bleeding event. People who are older than 65 years have kidney disease, have a history of bleeding, are using antiplatelet therapy, or have anemia, are more likely to experience a bleeding event. The risk for death for major bleeding with continued anticoagulation after 10 years would be more than 2.4%. 
On April 5, 2021, a federal rule mandated sharing of medical notes with patients. Sharing notes presents a novel opportunity to increase transparency, strengthen the physician-patient relationship, while also providing patients a window into the diagnostic and therapeutic thought process, which may help engage them in their care. However, patients can also be offended or confused by how encounters are documented, which highlights the importance of word choice in clinical notes. In a large survey involving 22,959 patients from three diverse health systems who read at least one of their medical notes, 10.5% reported feeling judged or offended by content that they considered labeling, with descriptions of obesity being the cause of discontent in almost 30% of patients. A commentary published on Annals.org on September 14th discusses the imperative for respectful documentation of obesity in medical notes, especially since more than 40% of adults in the U.S. have obesity. The collision of the COVID-19 pandemic and structural racism in 2020 focused attention on ways in which Black Americans are at risk for receipt of less and poorer quality health care than white Americans. One common response to these inequities is to implement race-neutral or colorblind practices and policies designed to ensure that all persons are treated the same regardless of race. Another commentary recently published in Annals sees colorblind policies as deeply misguided. The authors discuss how such policies often affect individuals differently to the detriment of black Americans because they fail to account for structural racism and the unequal social structure in which our healthcare system operates. Next is a new in the clinic review on the care of patients with abnormal liver function tests. Liver tests are commonly performed in primary care and may signal the presence of acute or chronic liver disease. Abnormal results are defined by standardized rather than individual laboratory thresholds and must be interpreted in the context of a patient's history and examination. The pattern and severity of liver injury may provide clues about the cause of disease and should guide diagnostic evaluation with serological testing and imaging. The In the Clinic Review outlines a systematic, evidence-based approach to the evaluation and management of patients with abnormal liver tests. Immunohematologic complications, including thrombosis and thrombocytopenia syndrome, immune thrombocytopenia, and autoimmune hemolytic anemia, have been reported after vaccination against COVID-19. Thrombocytopenia after COVID-19 adenoviral vector vaccination is of particular concern due to the potential for thrombosis and thrombocytopenia syndrome. But other causes of vaccine-related thrombocytopenia must be investigated and characterized. Next is a case report that illustrates an alternative cause of thrombocytopenia, transient glycoprotein-specific platelet autoantibodies after receipt of the J&J COVID-19 adenoviral vector vaccine. A simulation model published on Annals.org on September 21st suggests that ending the HIV epidemic in the United States will be challenging, requiring broad, sustained, multifaceted interventions tailored to specific community needs. The authors say their research should help policymakers determine the most effective combinations of interventions for their local setting. The Ending the HIV Epidemic Initiative aims to reduce incident HIV infections by 90% over a span of 10 years through a four-pronged approach that includes rapid diagnosis, effective treatments, infection prevention, and rapid response to outbreaks. Currently, interventions needed to achieve these goals are unclear. Researchers from Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine employed a simulation model to determine what it will take to end HIV in the United States. 
Their model considered jurisdiction-specific HIV epidemics in 32 high-priority metropolitan statistical areas and showed that without intervention, HIV incidents would increase by 19% across all metropolitan areas over the next 10 years. Modest increases in testing, pre-exposure prophylaxis, and viral suppression across the population would reduce incidence up to 67% in some cities during the same time frame, as would high-intensity increases focused on the highest risk groups of young Black and Hispanic men who have sex with men, including all men who have sex with men and people who inject drugs and in interventions, could reduce incidence by 48 to 90 percent. 13 of 32 metropolitan statistical areas could achieve greater than 90 percent reductions in incidence with large-scale interventions targeted across the entire population. According to the authors, reaching the Ending the HIV Epidemic Initiative goals may require a level of intervention that is beyond the reach of most local jurisdictions, However, their local-level protections can help decision-makers identify those interventions most likely to have a population-level effect. Next is a special report that concludes that the U.S. Food and Drug Administration approval process has weak systems to support consistency in its decision-making, resulting in standalone decisions that can appear to conflict with each other. When the FDA explains the rationales for its actions, it does not cite previous decisions, nor does it have mechanisms to find related ones. The authors believe that considering precedent, as judges do, would help the FDA achieve more consistency and transparency of its decisions, fostering better public understanding and trust. The FDA has substantial flexibility in its approval criteria in the context of life-threatening disease and unmet therapeutic need. This flexibility was highlighted recently when the Alzheimer drug aducanumab was approved against the advice of the FDA's own advisory committee. Shedding light on how such decisions are made is imperative for the public and the scientific community to have trust in FDA's actions. Researchers from Stanford University reviewed drug approval applications submitted between 2013 and 2018 that were not approved on the first submission because efficacy evidence was deemed inadequate. Of 912 applications included in the analysis, 117 went through multiple review cycles and 22 of those faced additional review. Rejections were based on issues ranging from concerns about the endpoint to clinical meaningfulness of the observed effect. In seven of the 22 cases, the eventual approval did not require new evidence, but rather new interpretations of the original evidence. There were no examples of the FDA referencing previous decisions in any of the 22 cases that had initially been rejected, highlighting a glaring need for better evidence curation and searchable databases, among other information systems, to observe and preserve precedential tradition. In accompanying editorial, Dr. Joel Perlmutter writes, quote, prospective rules for transparency must be developed and followed. Breaking the financial tether between the FDA and industry also will help ensure independence. Full funding by Congress could have a substantial return on investment, as FDA decisions have potentially large impacts on federal expenditures through Medicare. These corrective steps will permit the FDA to regain and maintain community trust. We need a strong and independent FDA, end quote. Also new in annals are the latest issue of ACP Journal Club and the latest annals for hospitalists alert, including a commentary on palliative care. Finally, there is the latest episode of Consult Guys. The Consult Guys provide an update on postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome and the latest annals on call podcasts. This podcast episode features a conversation about the advantages and disadvantages of teaching at the patient's bedside 
with Dr. Lisa Willett of University of Alabama in Birmingham. That brings us to the end of this Highlights podcast. Please return in two weeks for the next podcast. In the meantime, I hope you will go to annals.org to read some of the articles I've mentioned. You can earn CME and MOC credit if you do. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson and Andrew Langman for their technical support.